Hello and welcome to Live and Learn with me, Dashran Johan. Podcasts are becoming increasingly popular in Malaysia and all over the world. On the one hand, this feels like the next chapter of the democratization of the media space and another great tool to reach out to the masses, which is something to be welcomed. After all, even BFM shows are available as podcasts. On the other hand, though, it could also become another avenue to spread misinformation or half-truths with an aura of legitimacy. Dr. Benjamin Lowe is a senior lecturer at the School of Media and Communication at Taylor's University, and he recently wrote a column for Malaysia Kini titled Rise of Podcasting and its Threat to Critical Discourse, which is what we're going to be discussing on the show today. Welcome to the show, Ben. Happy New Year. How are you? Thank you, Dashan, for having me on. Happy New Year to you too. So let's get um, right into it. What inspired you to write this article? Well, I think if you've been sort of like looking at the sort of like uh, social media discourse regarding politics and other uh, major issues in Malaysia, especially in the last few months, we're starting to see a lot more um podcasts that have started to go viral, especially on Twitter, essentially, you know, and a lot of times uh, they have been still short clips from, you know, hour-long podcasts, and they will often take, like, the most bizarre or quite outlandish claims that are being presented in these podcasts, essentially, and then people are having discussions about it. Now, the thing about it is that, yes, while a lot of the ways these are presented on Twitter or X is often in a very negative and often critical manner, but that does, but for it to reach that point, it probably would have gone uh, sort of like would have been popular as a podcast on its own first. And for despite the fact that you see a lot of this sort of like um, uh, criticism towards it on other platforms, the podcasts themselves often have a very, very strong following. And the people who consume that content will sometimes either not even realize that this type of criticism is coming into that space. And so it's actually quite important to understand that podcasts. Um, Unlike other forms of media, I mean, yes, I think you make a very good point earlier about how, you know, we're talking about the podcasts are a very good um, part of the democratization of media, you know, the breaking down of barriers, the sort of like the moving away from gatekeepers and whatnot. And mm -hmm. I think it is actually very good that people are sort of like leveraging social media to sort of like make their voices heard and whatnot. But the part that makes podcasts both um, engaging and also a little bit problematic or enters into that space where there could be some problems is the fact that podcasts um, sort of like have this sort of like air of legitimacy due to the fact that they mirror or can sort of like proxy a lot of the ways in which a traditional press interview takes place as right. well. Now, um, when people use press interviews, of course, you know, people always believe that the, the press are doing a lot of this due diligence. They're doing a lot of this sort of like um, research and fact-checking behind the scenes before they bring the guests on, essentially, so that if the guest says anything that is controversial or problematic, they can actually press them on these matters. But for a lot of podcasts, I'm not saying all podcasts follow this as well, sometimes these are sort of like uh, due diligence is not necessarily performed as mm -hmm. well. And again, podcasts are largely unregulated. And as a result of that, people may attribute the same level of legitimacy to a podcast that they may not actually give um, the same legitimacy uh, for a podcast similar to that of a traditional press interview without actually thinking too deeply about it as well. Right. So let's unpack all of that, right? But first, let's understand the, the podcast landscape. How are podcasts changing the media space? Um, perhaps you can start with the positives. Okay. So first off, I'd like to just sort of state that I'm not against podcasts. I mean, I'm on a podcast literally right now and I've been on <laughs> many podcasts before. And podcasts themselves are incredibly... 
uh, useful sort of like tools for people to learn about the world around them, but getting information and whatnot. And the reason of that is, of course, it's very, very simple. Uh, very much similar to how there are a lot of people who read books, but all they do is listen to audiobooks, essentially, because, you know, listening to something being told to you is a lot easier, a lot more accessible for mm. certain groups of people, as opposed to just reading it in a certain sense. And podcasts fill that gap very, very well. So in a certain sense, uh, I do not believe, I'm not advocating any, if you look at the comments that was put at the bottom of my Malaysia Kini, uh, some people were saying that, oh, are you trying to say you should ban uh, podcasts? No, I'm not advocating for the banning of podcasts. In fact, I, I believe that podcasts have a very important role. They have a very important space. But the what I was advocating in that article essentially is that people need to be mindful about who is presenting these podcasts and what is their main objectives or agenda behind it as well. So uh, because the idea that basically underlines what exactly they want to do with these podcasts, because again, uh, podcasts often serve one or two functions. It's either they want to influence sort of like public discourse in a certain way or uh, certain podcasters do it because it's a way for them to eke out a living, earn income. So they will try to build a following. Again, this is not something that's unique to podcasts. This is how a lot of social media influencers also position themselves. But, you know, podcasts, again, has sort of like entered into this sort of like political discourse space as well. And so that's where um, the fact that there's no regulation, there's no controls, uh, can sometimes allow them to operate with impunity and to advance certain narratives uh, that can be quite damaging depending on what their ultimate goal is fundamentally. I want to dive a little bit more into how podcasts are different from other forms of media because, you know, even, let's say, platforms like um, social media platforms, let's say TikTok, Instagram, or even websites, blogs, so on and so forth, all of these could be um, and already are, um, you know, in m many instances, purveyors of fake news, half-truths, propaganda, so on and so forth. Why is this podcast aspect particularly interesting to you? How is it different from, let's say, someone going on Instagram and, and just spreading fake news, for example? I think it's big. I think, yes, technically speaking, if, you, if you're looking at podcasts where people are just speaking on your own, uh, then yes, it is very, it's not too different from other forms of social media type content, especially YouTube, especially. Right. But the one that I'm really focusing on really is podcasts where they are focusing on interviews, you know, where you bring on certain guests to uh, speak about, about certain things. And the idea here is that, you know, if you think about a press interview, whenever the press interviews somebody, there's always a goal in mind of why they're interviewing that person. And they want to ask the right questions. They want to make sure that they press them on things for clarification, uh, to make sure that they are... Uh, giving the right answers because all of this is to serve the public interest. They are asking these difficult questions, getting, you know, either politicians or people from uh, in sort of like with, with uh, significant interests that affect the public uh, interests um, to sort of like engage and to provide their feedback. And to a certain extent, journalists do see themselves also as a representative of the public at large. With uh, podcasting, especially with interview-based podcasts, um, they can often go through the same motions and it can resemble that of a typical media interview as well. But right. again, you have no idea whether any of these background checks, all these fact-checking, all this sort of like the desire to even serve the public interest is actually part of what that podcaster has in mind essentially as well. And I think that's a very, very important difference. And I think people need to recognize that, especially in deciding on what, what kinds of podcasts they want to do. Because again, if you look at everybody, if it's very simple, uh, one thing that I also want to highlight is that 
social media has made it so that people really believe social media to be uh, sort of like a source of proper information that people want to learn. And I think the success of TikTok has really made that become quite clear. And it, I think that's, um, that is the world where we live in right now. And you can also see social media content creators leaning into that as well. Sometimes you see like a lot of uh, sort of like um, creators that do have like that, that proper background, you know, they have like, they have like the proper degrees, they have the proper experience, and they always try to underline that when they start their their videos or their content presentation. Because they, again, they know that people are not going to check, people are not going to sort of like look at other things. So they want to clarify that I am qualified to say these things very early at the start, essentially, to get into that. Now, the problem is that if you look at podcasts, sometimes um, these things may not necessarily happen or progress and at at, at, provide that same level of in-depth uh sort of that 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 qualification and sometimes um if people follow a certain podcast and this is something that we're seeing a lot with other influencers on other platforms as well if you like a particular platform you like this influencer because they are an expert in a particular field at a certain point when they start to see that they want to grow their audience they can start to branch out into other things that they may not actually have the qualifications to talk about in that sense but because they have that following and they want to branch out, the followers will just assume that they know and understand that. So we've seen that quite a bit of a few times. Like, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar, there is actually a recent controversy regarding uh, the so-called Tunnel Girl on uh, TikTok. I don't know if you're familiar. <laughs> about. And I think that's a very, very interesting story because for a long time, she said that, oh, I'm an engineer with the implicit um, understanding that she... Um, is knowing what she's doing. You know, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, it's this woman who decided out of the blue to just build a tunnel underneath her home uh, in a suburb in America, essentially. And uh, she was doing all of these things. She was documenting it. And when somebody finally uh, went in to check and, and the city got, the town got involved, basically, and they told her to shut down. And all of these things are being unearthed to sort of like check on, did she actually have the qualifications? And it turns out that when she said she was an engineer, what she actually meant was that she was a software engineer, had nothing to do with sort of like being able to build a tunnel and whatnot. So again, these are the kinds of sort of like aspects of media literacy that now uh, as members of the audience, we are all sort of like put into this very uncomfortable position where we must question the media that we consume because it used to be we could we, we could we could rely on the regulators we could rely on the media to do that for us but now in the social media space where all of those things either are too slow or they're not just not present essential or it's just too much content to go through it is really depending on the people to be able to do these checks themselves which is what I'm kind of advocating for in my article essentially what is it that lends one podcast um, credibility, not real credibility necessarily, but credibility in the eyes of the public versus another podcast, for example. Because like you said, in, in a more um, you know traditional media space or something, even if it's not traditional, right? Even if it's in the digital space, but if it's tied to a press agency, for example, or you have actual journalists um, doing the work and, and producing the podcast and, and whatnot, there are certain sort of um, editorial standards to adhere to, fact-checking that goes on behind the scenes, so on and so forth. Um, and whether or not the public um, sees that as the reason it, it is considered um, credible or not, I'm, I'm not sure. But I'm wondering, what is it that g- makes a public attracted to one podcast versus another? Is it the amount of views they have? Is it the production value? What is it that makes someone consume a podcast and go, that's credible? I think the okay. I I think 
Well, that is a very, very good question. I think for a lot of people, when they consume information on podcasts, I think whether that is credible, I think whether something is credible, it's not very high on that list. I think the, for the most part, it's what is entertaining, what is right. the most accessible and what's easily consumed. Because remember, you have to remember, you know, a lot of these podcasts are half an hour, one hour, or even several hour, hours long, essentially, you know. And in order to engage your audience for that long period of time, you actually need to be focusing more about your presentation. You have to have a certain level of charisma, uh, a, a kind of way of trying to engage that really can draw your audience in and keep them uh, sort of like occupied and focus on whatever it is that you want to deliver for a long time, essentially. So I think that is really the most important factor that, again, podcasters understand this. And I think people also, yeah, it, it's very simple. You know, if, if I want to listen to a podcast, essentially, I'm going to listen to podcasts that is actually going to be something that I find interesting that is going to be intriguing to me at the very least. And the credibility, again, this depends on the individual. Some individuals just like that the information is packaged in a certain way that is accessible to them. But for some other people, like, you know, I'm a person that, you know, is part of academia. So naturally, whenever information is presented to me, I would expect that, you know, uh, that there should be some evidence provided, some references that I can check on my own, essentially. And that's what a good podcast can do. You know, you, like, as you mentioned before, uh, ways of checking whether a podcast is credible. Easiest way, of course, is to see, is this being done by an individual that is may not may or may not be part of a bigger team that is doing, doing extensive research? Or is this part of an organization, a media organization that does have these checks and balances in place? But otherwise, you don't, then have to rely on the fact that if you have a podcaster that is doing it as an individual or a solo kind of uh, sort of like uh, operation, are they providing uh, information? Are they prov whenever they make any claims? Are they providing the evidence for that supports their claims? Essentially, you know. And again, uh, you may argue that oh, a podcast, you know, is really focusing on making things uh, sort of like quick and snappy and whatnot. And you know, evidence and backup information can sometimes interrupt that flow essentially. But again, it's all about how you want to present yourselves. And sometimes, if you present too much backup information, you can bore your audience. You lose their 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 interest at the same time as well. So it's a very very difficult kind of situation to sort of like balance. But again, this is where uh, it's about trying to teach people or rather trying to appeal to people to, you know, think more carefully about how you consume this information. And I think uh, we can even have a couple of examples that are that just came out regarding podcasts that happened in the last couple of days, you know, like one uh, involving a local media celebrity making some claims about uh, sort of like legalizing brothels for sub for uh, to reduce rape cases in um, sort of like migrant workers, which is a really uh, ridiculous case. But again, Again, if you look back at why audacious claims like this are made, it's really, uh, this is something that we have seen happening quite a bit, especially in the American environment. Um, you know, they are more, one of their most famous conspiracy theories, Alex Jones, was famously sued by uh, for propagating the Sandy Hooks, that, that the Sandy Hooks shooting in America was a hoax. And he was sued, and I think what, and he was sued and was supposed to pay one billion. He's trying to negotiate that at the moment, essentially. But again, he did all that, and they even showed in court, and he was forced to testify that he was doing all this because he knew that he could make money by pushing forth these sort of like um, alt-right alt conspiracy theories, essentially. Right. So again, um, you have to really be thinking about why exactly are they advancing, making these ridiculous claims, these very sensational kind of terms. Um, so these are things that are very, very important.
So I want to dive into that a little bit um, deeper after the break, but let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Dr. Benjamin Lowe. He's a senior lecturer in the School of Media and Communication at Taylor's University. We will be right back after these messages. Keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Dr. Benjamin Lowe. He's a senior lecturer at the School of Media and Communication at Taylor's University. And we're talking about podcasting and media literacy. So, Ben, um, what are your thoughts on... Um, because you, you brought up Alex Jones um, earlier. I'm wondering um, how do views, um, clicks and advertising revenue shape the way podcasters create content? Um, it is essentially for a lot of social media influencers, it is simply the put that they see this as their main revenue earning stream, essentially. It's their day job to mm -hmm. the next step. Where it used to be, if you go back like 20 years ago, uh, social media influencer was just sort of a title that people gave themselves if you had a following, but it wasn't really seen as an as a sort of like a serious uh, career line that people could actually go for in that sense. But now we've come to a point where social media has a lot of these uh, tools and means that you can actually um, make money in various different ways. Now, of course, uh, for most people to earn a living on social media, they would often just rely on the platform itself. You know, they're selling their own, their own merchandise and whatnot. But often whenever you see people who are diving into sort of like the focusing on the fringe elements, you know, which is what Alex Jones and mm -hmm. other uh, similar podcasters in that vein are doing, is that they try to sell uh, certain kinds of merchandise that they know that their followers would often just blindly follow as well. And that was something that was widely documented with how Alex Jones used to uh, sort of like uh, make money. You know, he would be he would be hawking a lot of these conspiracy theories. Then on the side, he would also be hawking a lot of his. But Alex Jones' uh, website, InfoWars, focuses on talking about uh, sort of like spreading uh, conspiracy theories and whatnot, in which he actually did sort of like admit in, in open court, essentially, that he was doing, he knew that these things were not true. But by building up their reputation, he would gather all these people who also do buy into conspiracy theories. And by, by nature, people who are conspiracy theorists naturally have a fear of anything that is establishment, anything that is institutionalized to a certain degree. And he used that to market uh, alternative um, what alternative supplements, medications, and whatnot. These are things that are that he would argue that oh, you don't really require these approvals because this approval, this no, no, the the pharmaceutical business is all owned by big pharma. It's all corrupted and whatnot, and that allows him to sort of like really market and sell to these people, and he sells it at exorbitant prices. So that is that particular goal in in mind to a certain extent. You know, for a lot of these time small time uh, podcasters, or well, in his case, not really small time anymore, but all these independent podcasters, that is always seen as a way to sort of like make money as well. And whenever money is involved, that's when you start to see the quality get sacrificed in a lot of cases. Like uh, this, you can even see this thing happening with Twitter live at the moment, you know, with Twitter, uh, the change that happened, I think, but I think at this point was like almost a year ago that there is now revenue sharing if you participate in their uh, blue check uh, subscriber program and you're starting to see a lot of really low quality like sort of like tweets being put out there just to farm for engagement because again that now pays out so again this uh it's really the manner in which income is generated that will influence how all of these things propagate ben you know before the break you talked about how uh, when it comes to let's say podcasts that are under press or even podcasts that are done by independent journalists 
Um, there is an element of fact-checking there. Could you explain why fact-checking and pushing back is very important? I know it seems like the most basic question, but many people, for example, have called out podcasters like Joe Rogan. And his defenders will say, well, he may, he may not be push, uh, pushing back or fact-checking, but what he does is he just has all sorts of people on the show. So you, you may have uh, someone highly credible, um, like a Bernie Sanders on the show, um, and then on the other hand, you may have an anti-vaxxer on the show, and defenders of the Joe Rogan experience, uh, just one example of a very, very popular podcast, say that, you know, it's just different points of view. You know, um, on the you know, one hand, he will have an academic who is really credible, on the other hand, a flat earther, and blah, 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 you know, and you, you just have all these different points of views What's wrong with that? Um, how would you respond to that? I would say that that is actually part of the strategy that that they are proposing. That just because, um, uh, like, because you have to sort of like examine again what exactly is the goal that's in mind. And the Joe Rogan experience is actually a very interesting case study because Joe Rogan, I mean, that entire podcast is sort of like. Um, presented as a means of saying that, oh, it's just a conversation between people, it's right. an open space, there's nothing political about any of these things. But again, it goes back into what exactly are you trying to read between the lines, essentially, you know, just because you have a media outlet or certain, like, even if you look at sort of like so-called uh, right-wing outlet, media outlets as well, that doesn't mean that they do not invite sort of like left like left wing or liberals onto their platform as well. And more often than not, that is often seen as a way to sort of like give the um give the impression that they are actually balanced and they are offering uh they are opening discourse to both sides of the debate. But again, you cannot you need to sort of like take a closer look at how exactly are they sort of like um presenting those uh looking into how these things are done. Because again, whenever a podcast host similar to how a, a press interview conducts its, itself in a certain way, how you react to the way that your guest presents different things basically underlines what exactly is your goal in mind. And so, I mean, you can have all these guests that are both problematic and also uh, quite clean cut. But if you uh, either give them um, free reign to talk about anything that they want or you don't press them on certain answers and whatnot, all of these things are done deliberately to advance certain goals and agendas that you want to have in mind. Now, um, if you are in a country that has a very strong sort of like media um, uh, sort of like code of ethics, a very, very strong journalism code of ethics, then media outlets have a, have, have a very difficult time sort of like trying to advance certain agendas because um, again, if, if there's no media council in this country, but if the media has a strong uh, sense of uh, sort of like camaraderie and code of ethics amongst each other, then other media will then censure media that step out of line or try or supposedly present, uh, how do you say, uh, inauthentic kind of interviews whereby they're trying to advance certain political agendas. Other media will call them out on it. And you see that quite a bit as well, you know, on Twitter especially. And this is where Twitter actually was very, very important a long time ago with that journalists used to operate primarily on Twitter. And whenever uh, certain media outlets or certain journalists would say certain things that was problematic, they would immediately call them out on it because that was part of how the media is supposed to operate. You know, this whole idea of the media regulates itself. This is all how that is supposed to work. Now, um, a more institutionalized way of that is to have a media council that will do that. But all of these things don't really exist in the podcast space because, again, podcast space, due to the nature of social media echo chambers and whatnot, if you want to criticize... Um, uh, if, if a podcast presents works that are problematic and other people criticize that particular podcast, there is a very strong chance that the actual audience of that podcast 
will never see any of this criticism as well. Because again, how will they get access to that criticism? If this criticism goes onto another platform that they're not on, then it, it might as well just even not even exist to them as well. So that in itself is a very, very big problem because there's no external uh, checks and balances that are in place for podcasting as a result of that. So let's talk about um, some of the solutions in depth. Um, how do we combat this problem? And let's look at it from few angles, starting from the public, the consumers of these podcasts. How can consumers of podcasts decide between what is credible, what's a credible podcast and what isn't? I would say that the easiest way to do it is to sort of uh, see, is this podcast run by a reputable institution or organization? It can either be uh, and all, like it can, it doesn't have to be a media outlet. It can be an independent group that sort of like has done excessive work before. So that's one of the easier ways to sort of do it. But of course, you know, um, reputable organizations may not produce the most entertaining podcasts as well. You know, like I know that for some people, yes, NPR is considered to be like the gold standard for really good quality podcasts. But for many others, they're basically um, white noise for sleeping to them as well. You know, the quality <laughs> is, is, I mean, it's very in, informative and whatnot, but it's also very dry at the same time. And, and, and that's totally understandable as well. And NPR also recognizes that, you know, they don't uh, prescribe that their podcasts are for everybody. And so I would say that one way to sort of like um, extend that is that, and this is something that I also wrote in my article, is that don't take anything that you say in the podcast. And it, that even includes this podcast that we're on right now at face value don't say take anything that people are saying in these uh again these spaces that do not require any fact checking or any sort of like due diligence do not take it at face value take it as oh this is an interesting point and then you do your own research to check up on that to see whether oh is this actually makes sense is this actually um sort of like rooted in other things and again if you want to refer to other podcasts that's fine but as long as you are checking from multiple sources of information that is a very, very good step to make sure that you are getting the right information and not just uh, sort of like being manipulated by sort of like uh, podcasters with an agenda, essentially. So for me, I think that is probably the most accessible. But again, it's also the most, not the most practical because again, for most people, um, the reason the reasons why podcasts are so popular also is simply because I just want to listen to a single podcast that will tell me everything I need to know about the world. I don't want to do any other research. Right. I might as well just read at that point. Right. So, that's always going to be the problem as well. But I know, I understand that this is very difficult, especially in our fast-paced, you know, a short attention span, social media addicted kind of like environment. But these are things that I think uh, we just need to start teaching people to sort of like do uh, engage in it as well, to know, not not just accept that just because somebody delivers, uh, are, are very good oral presenters, they can deliver with a lot of charisma, with a lot of eloquence that we automatically accept that whatever they're saying is absolute truth. Do you think people need to be a little bit more hardworking as well in terms of getting to know who the podcasters are, who the host is, who the guest is? Um, and I don't, and I think this is not just a podcasting, right? Even when we look at, um, let's say, articles um, on, on various websites, um, I think, you know, many people, they don't actually look at the byline then see, okay, let's say this, um, this by, the byline is by Ali Chong. Then you actually go and Google who Ali Chong is, where did he study, where did he work, what is, what is his experience, um, what gives him um, credibility to write this particular column. I don't think most people do that, right? They just, whatever that comes um, through on their social media, they just keep, 
click it, quickly scroll through, and most people don't even know who the article's written by and things like that. Do you think people need to be a little bit more hardworking, whether it's podcasts, get to know who your hosts are, who the guests are, who's writing the article, and, and things like that? Uh, I I mean, I would say that, yes, people should do that, but though I wouldn't use the term hardworking because, again, if you want to learn information, you shouldn't be looking at that as work, essentially. Right. So, but it, it does come to that because, you know, uh, we are now at, it used to be that we we relied on the media to do that for us. You know, mm-hmm. the media will say, oh, this person is an expert. Well, you know, whenever a media outlet says that we talk, we spoke to an expert, you can uh, you can uh, be assured that the media probably did their background checking. They did their fact checking. They looked at this person's um, sort of like backgrounds and details. And then with absolute certainty, they say this person's an expert. Uh, but now if a podcaster says that I'm an expert in this field, you need to do your own checking to make sure that that is correct but not. And again, for most people, it's sometimes it's it's difficult. It's very time consuming. And yeah, I mean, it is the unfortunate truth now that we live in in a media environment where again, um, I don't say this to sort of say that you know there's always there's this always misperception that you know oh you know people who are in sort of like you know the extreme echo chambers right you know they either uh and again people always assume that oh it's only it's people who are in the far right or the far conservative movement they are manipulated by a lot of these kinds of podcasters and whatnot the thing is this happens across the board it's not something that is unique to that particular space you know for every far right kind of like podcasters out there you can actually find a few far left podcasters that are also there as well right and i think that's also one of the problems that we're seeing as when you're looking at people who are engaging in this space yes their background the credibility all that is important but the thing is when it comes to earning an income or making money all those can sometimes be actually irrelevant because they can just shift their allegiances they can just change the way that they want to engage just because they want to sort of like earn a living and we are starting to see that as well with the way that certain kinds of like um conservative uh, commentators have suddenly shift their stances when talking about uh, Israel and Palestine especially on american based twitter as well so these things are while they do serve as a useful way for people to sort of like okay this is the first step you want to do to fact check the people that you're listening to but also we remember that that when it comes to money anybody can change your allegiances at any given time as well. So it's something that people have to do actively, constantly, and not just assume that, oh, this person has all the paper background, all the qualifications necessary, and therefore everything is going to be correct. It doesn't work that way anymore, unfortunately. What steps do you think can be taken within the podcasting community to enhance transparency and accountability? (laughs) I think... The fact that we refer to the podcasting as a community itself is, is, is quite challenging because, again, when you think about a community, right, it means that the entire the entire group exists in, traditionally would exist in some sort of physical space or a shared space together. Podcasters, by nature, do not share a space, essentially. Mm. You know, they, 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 they can be a podcast that operates on Instagram, on YouTube, on TikTok, on Twitter, and things like that. And again, that is... Um, that is why it's very difficult to keep podcasters in check because the only, I mean, the I would say that the best way to actually do that, I, the only platform that really supports that very, very well would probably be, I guess, TikTok to a certain extent, you know, with the ability to tweet, to stitch certain things. Though other platforms do have um, these sort of elements as well. But again, um, TikTok does allow creators to remove the ability to stitch as well. So to prevent stitching. So it's very, very difficult. And 
I mean, podcasters can sort of like say that, yes, we can keep each other in check. But for the most part, um, like, you know, you know, there's a very popular saying in Malaysia, you know, don't disturb somebody's rice bowl. <laughs> uh, that kind of feeling also propagates in certain, uh, in, in all of these spaces, especially when you're dealing with people who are essentially grassroots type of uh, content creators as well. You know, it's going like, I don't want to, sort of like mess with other people's sort of like work because then that would put expose me to also being checked by other people as well. So sometimes people just tend to not want to interfere with each other. But at the same time, it's also very easy to sort of build your own little echo chamber in the middle of your own social media space and nobody will ever bother you until you suddenly grow too large and your followers start disrupting other people's spaces as well. And by the time you reach that point, um, you have so much power and influence that you don't really even need to do that anymore as well. I mean, people can pressure you, but uh, unless you are sort of like really pushing for very, very aggressive kinds of push, which is what Alex Jones did, um, it's sometimes very difficult for other people to sort of like, uh, sort of uh, to force you to change the way that you want to operate, which is what you're seeing with a lot of like, which is the main reason why Joe Rogan doesn't really have to change the way that he operates. You know, a lot of the, the, Joe Rogan's approach is very simple. He basically provides a platform and that's how he sort of like operates it. You know, he doesn't ask super challenging questions and it's really more about just allowing people to say what they want to say. And that's why it also appeals to a lot of different people as well. But that also means that uh, he can just put certain guests, allow them to say whatever they want. And he's and the whole point is that he still makes money at the end of the day, essentially. So with all of that in mind, can and should the government get involved? Are there international best practices or standards that you believe could be applied to improve reliability of podcast content, especially in Malaysia? Oh, that is a very, very tricky question. And I think <laughs> if, you've had, uh, if you've been listening to other stuff that I've been saying on podcasts, mm-hmm. I think you will know that I will say that, yeah, I don't think any government should ever step in to regulate podcasts. Because if you want to regulate podcasts, you might as well be regulating social media content as well because they are essentially at the same level to a right. certain degree. Uh, but I would, I think if, well, one way that you can sort of do it, right, is that um, it's really about trying to label what it constitutes as media or information or news, essentially. Because sometimes podcasts do, when when a podcast does engage in sort of like political debate, then that actually falls under the purview that could be argued under certain uh, uh, context to be engaging in public discourse. And in certain countries, public discourse is actually regulated to a certain degree. And that is where um, a meet, uh, an organization like the Media Council will be very, very influential because I think they should be the ones that will be regulating this space. So if you do have um, sort of like uh, any podcast that is going to be entering into, into this particular space, then there should be some standards in place that, yes, if you want to be a podcast and you want to sort of like uh, take a very sort of like uh, uh, unrefined or unregulated or very um, un, um, you don't do any checking to your interviews as well, feel free to do that as well. But maybe what can be done is that there can be a there can be a way to label certain kinds of podcasts that if you want to be a podcast that engages in discussions about politics, about things like say about an election and whatnot, then you must adhere to certain standards and rules. And, and, and this is something that other countries have also done as well, especially when it comes to elections. You know, in Malaysia, uh, elections actually is the only point where um, we regulate any kind of like media content as well. You know, anything that's directly talking about campaigns and whatnot, that's when uh, things are done. And you that's where, but the thing is, it doesn't actually cover a lot of social media content as well. And I think that's something that probably needs to be tightened up to a certain degree because a lot of times um, you see people saying that, oh, you know, I'm 
even though I'm talking politics, it's still my personal opinion, which again, which is the common defense that people are doing. But, you know, when you're sort of like engaging with people, you're doing interviews with different groups of people, then you that actually needs to be expanded to sort of include that as well. So I guess one easy step would be to just sort of like expand the definition of what constitutes politics. But again, we don't even regulate that properly as well. So until we probably find a way to do that, that uh, limits government influence. Again, all of this is predicated on having an independent body like the media council in place to sort of manage that. But until we have something like that to do it, it's going to be very difficult to even try to regulate podcasts in general. Do we need media literacy classes, proper ones in school? Because it seems like at its core, if people are highly media literate um, and, and there are proper programs in schools um, to get people's media literacy levels up, then this will not necessarily be a, a big problem because ultimately people will be able to fact check, people will be able to, um, you know, really look into um, every time people come across a podcast, an article, a video, or whatever it may be, people will check who's the host, who's the thing, um, who, who's the guest, um, what are their uh, you know, um, qualifications, um, is this an opinion piece or is this a news piece? I think right now people just take everything as sort of a fact, right? There seems to be um, in a, that like people don't seem to be able to even tell the difference between this is a news piece and this is a column, an opinion piece written by someone. Um, do you think we need, that at, the, at a fundamental level, that's what it is, we need media literacy classes in school? Oh yeah, definitely. Media literacy, uh, and I've said this before, media literacy should be one of the main things that needs to be added onto our school syllabi at the moment, essentially. You know, um, and I think it's media literacy also not just in the sense that we um, that you learn how to identify sources of information, trying to um, <clears throat> to to think about how to sort of like critique and process information that's being presented to you. I think that's very fundamental, but also in sort of like understanding. And I think this is where there's a lot of hesitancy because a lot of the ways in which our government, again, this is. Uh, the government body in its own. I'm not even referring to whichever political party is in charge, but the government uh, has this sort of understanding that they should always be seen as the utmost authority for anything informative as well. And so if they they are the ones that are, are sort of like adding media literacy into, into sort of like the education system, often they will have difficulty in trying to... I, I think... Uh, I've seen certain samples of certain ways of trying to present media literacy in schools from the government, and from and often and more often than not, they always refer to that oh, only uh, rely on credible sources of information like government media, like government sources, and government <laughs> uh, like the prime minister and things like that, which is partially true. But the whole point of media literacy now is that you want to train people that that you need to be critical about all the information that you receive to right. a certain extent, and I think. But while that is also true, I think the bigger issue that I sort of like talked about earlier as well is that we are now at a point where you have to be vigilant at all times consuming your media because even if a media outlet that you find to be reputable, it could change overnight their entire stance. You know, they could be bought up by a larger company. There could be a shift in their editorial stance or suddenly they decided that oh, we're not making enough money. We need to make uh, earn revenue in some way, shape or form. And so they can change their entire approach. So even if you have like a, like, like part of the way that media literacy works is that you need to have a certain set of media that you assume to be very, very credible. And you can always rely on them to fact check you and to do everything correct. But right now, no media is safe from that. Like even 
big institutions from uh, from a long time ago, a lot of them have shifted stances, you know, they've been bought out and whatnot. And when those things happen, if you don't exercise this idea of being vigilant and checking in on your media sources regularly, you can easily still be manipulated or fall into that trap. So the big problem that we as media literacy scholars are facing is that how do we get people to sort of like adopt media literacy in a sort of like sustainable manner? Because if I were to tell you that, oh, uh, you need to be on the lookout to check on your media in case they change. Does this mean that every time I receive any piece of news, I need to fact check it? Like, like there's only so many hours in the day. There's only so much news you want to read every day. So if you have to fact check every single thing every single day, that will that will basically be a full-time job on its own. Right. So might as well um, be a journalist yourself. Yes, might as well be a journalist. <laughs> Everybody could just be a journalist at this point. So that, that will solve everything. But so that's really the main concern that we have as well. And I guess social media companies can sort of step up to actually do a lot of these things as well. You know, so one simple way that social media companies can also do is to allow people to provide fact-checking. And I think this is, a, okay, I think on this part, Twitter is at the forefront. I think Twitter has made this change. The one change that was really done under new leadership that I think is really good is their community notes. I mean, community notes has some problems, but by and large, it is probably the best one of the most sort of like interesting ways in the last few years that any social media platform has allowed sort of like some way for fact-checking to enter into the social media space. And it is incredibly powerful and influential as well. So even something like that would be very beneficial for a lot of people. And on that note, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Dashran, for having me. That was Dr. Benjamin Lowe. He's a senior lecturer at the School of Media and Communication at Taylor's University. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on, well, podcasts. Um, we are available on the BFM app, um, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9.